Welcome to Crossword, where cultural clues lead to the truth of the word. My name is Michelle McAloon, your host. Today, we have the great pleasure of welcoming back Professor Andrew Pedigree. Andrew David Mark Pedigree is a British historian and an expert on the European Reformation, the history of the book, and media transformations. As of 2022, he holds a professorship at St. Andrews University, where he's the director of the Universal Short Title Catalog Project, and he's the founding director of the St. Andrews Reformation Studies Institute. We've interviewed Professor Pedigree before, along with his co-author, Dr. Arthur Dare Vedevin, in their book, The Library, A Fragile History. But today we're here to talk about his latest book, The Book at War, How Reading Shaped Conflict and Conflict-Shaped Reading, published by the wonderful Basic Books. Welcome, Professor Pedigree. Well, very nice to be with you again. It's such a delight because I tell you, this book is absolutely fascinating. There are so many vignettes of history that you draw into this book to show how the book actually has gone to war, is a part of war, in the war of ideas, and how books have survived war, and ultimately how books continue to be a very potent player in the development and the battle of ideas, even to this day as we speak. So where did you get the idea for writing this book, which I found interesting? Well, to some extent, it was uh, it, it was a continuation of the work Arthur and I had been doing on, on libraries. Because one of the things that features quite prominently in the history of libraries is their destruction, particularly in the 20th century, but also in previous wars going back to the Roman Empire, where books were valuable booty. So I wanted to say a lot more about what happens to books in warfare and what books do in wartime. And I wanted to make the point that whereas in many previous studies, we've got the impression that that books are the sort of hapless victims, the innocent victims of destruction. Whereas I wanted to point out that books were also important to the process of war making and the sort of ideologies embedded in books were often often played their role in motivating populations to go to war. So they turn out to be not so innocent at all. Absolutely. And that's you bring that out in your introduction, wars and libraries. And actually you bring out, I think it was uh, the the library in Oxford. I can never pronounce it, the Boodlin Library. The Bodlin Library. Bodlin Library. And yeah. how it was actually, it was a library, but it was actually a legitimate target of war uh, during World War II. Explain that a little bit, if you would, please. During the Second World War, the Bodleian Library was the headquarters of, uh, uh, of several military departments. It also was the headquarters of the Service for Prisoners of War Reading, which sent them the books they needed for the courses they were taking. And it was also where blood plasma was warehoused in advance of the 
attacks in Normandy, the great uh, assault of 1944. So for all of those reasons, you could say that Oxford particularly, because many of the colleges also were housing military departments, was um, a prime target for bombing. Yet for some reason, which no one has ever fathomed, uh, Hitler ordered that that Oxford should be spared. Very interesting, because you said he was a lover of architect, and he actually decided that somehow that was going to be the Gestapo headquarters if they if Germany had won. Was that correct? I think the Gestapo headquarters was due for the, the very sort of uh, very 20th century building, the Senate House of London University. People have postulated all sorts of, of, of reasons for Oxford and Cambridge not being bombed. Uh, some have been arguing that there was a sort of informal gentleman's agreement that if the Germans didn't bomb Oxford and Cambridge, we'd leave Heidelberg and Tübingen intact. Uh, I don't know if there's any possible truth in that. The case of Oxford is particularly strange because, of course, in Cowley, they had a major car industry, which was turned over to war work also in, in the Second World War. So it would have been a perfectly legitimate target. And of course, bombing was not precise enough to be able to target particular buildings in those days. Hence, um, the huge amount of destruction to libraries in the bombing, because they were often in prominent buildings in, right in the center of town. And your book does a really good documentation of how libraries were destroyed and libraries were actually, they were not innocent victims of war, but they were victims of war. And we don't stop with World War II. We Even in 1992, we see the uh, Serbian library destroyed that because basically and ultimately books are about the battle of ideas in this war of ideas. And it's interesting that you say that you're, you're, you really look at the history of the major wars between the 19th and 20th century, and that these were wars fought between bookish people. And one of the things that you bring out that I didn't realize was that Stalin was a very well-read man, along with Hitler, along with Mao. These were men who loved their books, who curated their libraries, who were deeply read. And so Roosevelt wasn't, but <laughs> these, well, Roosevelt wasn't an author, I guess, but these other three men were authors. And it's, I think it, that is very interesting because often we think of Stalin as being sort of a thug and Hitler as a thug, but they were actually bookish people. They were people of books and learning. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Uh, Roosevelt was a, a very bookish man. He was very well read. But w what I would say is he was more of a journalist than an author, if you like. Uh, hence, he, his ability to snatch from the ether a pithy phrase to encapsulate an idea, which made him such a great leader and uh, such a persuasive speaker. He also was a book collector, and his house, which is now the Roosevelt Museum and, and Library, has a very fine book collection, which even at the point he was becoming president, he gave to, to the nation. But you're right. I mean, if uh, the democracies realize the importance of building libraries, having reference collections, having modern material on other countries, 
is important to war making. Of course, if that was true of the, of the democracies, it was it, uh, clear that the dictatorships would want to use books equally and also use them as a tool for shaping their peoples to the ideologies which would bring war in the first place. And that that also occurs on both sides of this ideological battle. Books played a very important role in preparing uh, the British population, for instance, for you know, the long lines of people who lined up at the start of the Boer War, and then again in 1914 at the start of the, the First World War, lined up to volunteer. They, they had, to, to a large extent, been conditioned by their reading. You also bring up a really good story between Abraham Lincoln and Harriet uh, Beecher Stowe, the author of Uncle Tom's Cabin, and how that kind of shaped our understanding in the shape of the nation during the Civil War. Tell our audience about that story. Well, Uncle Tom's Cabin was a huge success. It was it was published first of all uh, in serial parts in, in a magazine. That was quite usual in those days, and then then as a single volume. And it produced a tremendous reaction. It was widely read uh, across the American states and then uh, had huge success in, in Britain and then again in Europe, uh, particularly in translation, and well into the 20th century. Now, people read it for different reasons. In Europe, and particularly in the 20th century by admirers like Lenin, it was read because it exposed the hypocrisy of the United States. In the North, it was read by many people who believed slavery was atrocious. But I don't think it was the book which started the American Civil War, at least on, not on the Union side. When Union soldiers were asked in the war, why are you fighting? They mentioned several things. Uh, they mentioned that uh, they were fighting to preserve fair play. Elections had to be respected. They were fighting for the principle of republic, the nature of the republic. One officer said, you know, we are the greatest republic in the world. And if we fail to make the republican form of government work, then you know, what hope for, for the rest of the world? Uh, what they didn't say is that they were fighting to abolish slavery. In fact, when Lincoln issued his Emancipation Proclamation, that caused quite a lot of disquiet uh, among the troops in the Union Army. Where I think it was absolutely influential was in persuading the South that the North could never be trusted and that one way or another they would seek to abolish slavery. So if you're asking why the southern states seceded, then I think that that's probably in, in reinforcing this sense that they could not in the long term remain in the Union. That was probably its most important immediate political consequence. What you're saying, the political impact from this, that was the political impact from this book and yes. from this meeting with I can't remember what the vignette was that supposedly it was almost an urban myth of what was said between Abraham Lincoln and uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe in the interview in the White House. Yeah, that's right. I mean, certainly Harriet Beecher Stowe went to the White House. 
to take tea with Mrs. Lincoln, it's perfectly possible that the president would have walked in to meet her and, uh, and greet her. But that he, uh, he said to her, is this the little woman which caused this great war? That was first reported by in a biography of Stowe after her death by someone very close to the family. So whether that conversation actually took place, uh, we don't know. Interesting. Very interesting. So you actually, you look at three themes. You look at the weaponization of book culture and of books and of patriotism, poetry, and propaganda. Patriotism is easy to see and you really draw that out. One of the things I think it's hard for Americans to access is poetry and war and how poetry is weaponized war. We, our education system hasn't always lent itself to the study of poetry. So that's probably uh, something that's a little more foreign to Americans than it would to be to our European brothers and sisters. Well, I think that's, uh, you know, what you said would probably be true uh, pretty much now of our own school education. Poetry is studied. It's generally speaking, the First World War poets uh, who'd be studied in a history course rather more than they would be in a literature course. But if you look back a hundred years, poetry was everywhere. It was quite common for newspapers, for instance, to have poems uh, in their pages every day. Apart from anything else, they were useful fillers. Uh, readers would write in and send their poetry. And there was an enormous amount of poetry written in the first months of the First World War. And that was all over Europe, from Scotland to Serbia. But on the other hand, almost all of that poetry was in support of the war, of the patriotic cause. There was a strange and, and, and rather ghoulish sentiment that had grown up by 1914, that we'd had just about 60 years of peace in e Europe, in the sense that there was no major conflict between European powers, People who wrote thought that, uh, in consequence, men were getting very soft. It was a time of expanding economies, improved standards of living. And the idea was that somehow, you know, a, a bloodletting would restore some moral fibre to these societies. And you see that spirit expressed in Italy, in in the Balkans, uh, and also in France, Britain, and Germany. So it was, it was not a particular narrow thing. The problem that's arisen, I think, in understanding that is that the phenomenon as the war poets, so-called, in Britain, Rupert Brooke, uh, Graves, Sassoon, Wilfred Owen, now widely studied for their detestation of war. But in that, they were very much outriders of the at the time, and they only really became much read and fashionable in the 1960s when the First World War was being reassessed in a very negative way and where they could sort of um, go hand in hand with the European peace movement, which was then also very strong. But they don't really express... The, uh, the sentiment of the war. That's much more captured by Rupert Brooks, much more conventional patriotic um, poetry. 
Should you also bring up a book that has had a tremendous influence on really both sides of the Atlantic that it really since it first came out, and that was Clausewitz on War book. And mm-hmm. you actually, what I really like what you do in the book, you show sort of an arc of that book and how that book influenced officer training. Yes, I think the, the story of Clausewitz is, is, is a very interesting one because this is one, one of these books which really wasn't very successful when, when it was first published and not particularly widely known. And that's because in the first quarter of the 19th century, everything was Napoleon. He had been, although he was ultimately defeated and exiled, he had been the most remarkable battlefield general of the early 19th century. And so people wanted to know what was his secret. So those who were close to Napoleon could write books about strategy, and those were not only widely read, they were sort of compulsory reading in West Point. And as a result of that, the cadets, sometimes I'm sure very reluctantly, all had to do French, because a large proportion of the first uh, West Point library was actually texts in the French language, and so they had to be able to access them. We only really see, now Clausewitz was working away in these same decades on his, what became on war. But it must be said that we have no real knowledge as to what he eventually intended to publish because he died before it could be published. And so what we have is a amalgamation of rough drafts, which were put to, together with his, by his wife, who actually was very involved in the process of the writing as well, so she knew the text well. It's not really uh, the finished article, and it only really becomes important in the history of officer training uh, after the three great victories of the Prussian army in the middle of the century over Denmark, over Austria, and then finally over France. And it's then that people begin to sit up and take notice and say, wow, a great power has emerged in the centre of Europe, in the area where the boundaries of territories are most fluid. We now have this great power. And, you know, what are we all going to do with it? And it's at that point that Clausewitz was translated into English, and that meant that it could be used in West Point and Sandhurst and became an influential text and is still, I think, studied in all of those institutions. Uh, You look at the book at war, you look at the book at the home front, you look at the confluence of books between the synergy between newspaper periodicals and the long form book and how all of these are shaped that shape our ideas of going to war, that shape our reporting on war, that shape the home front of war. So it's not just books, it is a, it's media communication, really, and how these all kind of form together to help us understand war, to help us understand the ideologies that we are fighting for. Where in history do you think this was most poignant, where you see this confluence of all three coming together to form battlefield ideology? So I should just say to your, uh, your listeners that when I talk about books, I really mean all print. 
Sure. Um, so I'm talking about wherever printed text is used, and that can be books, it can be pamphlets, it can be newspapers, and it can also be posters on walls and also leaflets created to be distributed among the enemy. There was a lot of use made of this during the First and Second World Wars, an attempt to demoralize the troops in the trenches facing you by firing over shells which had had the explosives removed uh, and instead had several hundred copies of a leaflet which said you shouldn't be fighting do you know what's happening at home what's your wife up to while you're away why are you there why are you doing this and then after the invasion of norman of france in 1944 with the landings in normandy the the allies actually created a a daily paper giving the German troops the bad news about uh, how the front was changing because they wouldn't be getting this at this point from their own newspapers. Why do, what do I think is the most critical uh, point for this? I think the Second World War is a particularly bookish war, and that's because, um, and this is why my book concentrates mostly on the period between 1850 and the present day is because then you have mass literacy. And for propaganda to be effective through the agency of a print, you have to have a reading people. And that's what makes these wars more, most interesting because Germany was a highly educated nation, uh, had been going that way since, since the 16th and 17th century. Britain likewise, Britain and Germany also had the two largest publishing industries, uh, Germany serving a, a central European clientele, Britain with its vast demand for books in its empire. Then the United States, which was probably the fastest country to proceed towards universal literacy uh, of both men and women. Uh, and of course, France, a very cultured nation in its own right. Russia is a rather different case because their literacy remained at far lower levels right up to the to the Bolshevik Revolution. And it's one of the great achievements of the Soviet regime, which was not very successful in the long term economically. But in terms of spreading literacy between 1917 and 1939, they made enormous steps and, of course, they were very empowering in terms of female em employment in, in the war front. They had no, no hesitation in sending women to, to university and then into the uh, front line of industry, intelligence, and into the fighting troops. So, you know, books mattered more in these wars because so many more people could read them. And these, it must be said, were either conscript armies or volunteer armies, which took people away from their normal habitation and their normal job and turned them into fighting men. And they did not think of themselves as professional soldiers. They were, particularly in the American army, they were very much civilians in uniform who did their duty very effectively. But, you know, that was not to be their life and part of the, the war. There were many, many people who were not in the front line, who were servicing the military oper operation in one way or the other. 
And in fact, the greatest of all American talents in war making was logistics. They can move enormous numbers of men, enormous backup forces, and enormous amounts of uh, munitions and equipment all over the world as they had to fighting the, the, the Pacific War. And this involved large amounts of books. Um, the American forces looked after their servicemen extremely well. And this involved creating a whole new series of armed service editions, especially for the troops, given to them free, not available to the general public. And they published something over 120 million copies of a thousand titles in this series. Yeah, I found fascinating because you really developed the story of Penguin Books and how Penguin Books was actually a large part of this. And part of it, they were the long form so they could fit into the pocket of service members. So I, I thought that that was really, really fascinating. I'm a retired army officer, and I can't tell you how many times I had a paperback book in one of my cargo pockets. I was an aviator, so I always had one in my flight suit. This explain to the audience how Penguin Books developed, and the pocket. It was really the pocket book that developed the paperback, right? Yes, and the paperback had been around um, for, for for a long time in different manifestations. Actually, in the first age of print in the 16th century, all books were sold unbound. And then the new owner had them bound or bound together with other books as he chose. In 1935, when Penguin Books were founded, Alan Lane, the founder, was doing something new and different. He wanted to issue a modern fiction in a cheap paperback form. And once he persuaded the publishers who owned the copyrights of modern fiction uh, to give him the opportunity, it took off in an extraordinary way because he was offering modern novels and then non-fiction titles as well for sixpence a book, whereas the lowest price of a new novel in the same time would be about 15 times as much. So this is quite challenging for libraries because it was very difficult for them, given how many times these books would be read, to go over from hardbacks to paperback. But it was great for readers. And Penguin flourished not only because it was giving people recreational literature, but because they had a very strong nonfiction strand. So at every stage of the war, people wanted to read about their new friends, the Finns, and then they wanted to read about the fall of France, why it happened. They wanted to read about Russia when it became an ally in the war against Germany. So there was a strong non-fiction strand to this as well. And the, the combination was extraordinarily potent. And by the end of the war, Penguin had published something as uh, seven to 800 um, titles since 1935 and, and millions and millions of books. But they were beloved of the troops because they felt they were this was this was disposable reading you know you could it was the same as a packet of cigarettes and this was a, the, the age where everybody spoke they took um these with them uh, when they were fighting and they were much less unwieldy than the sort of books which were offered to them in the first world war so it was huge success followed by the americans as well and um one of the great coincidences that the Second World War broke out when this revolution in book production ha had just got underway. 
I'm in Wiesbaden, Germany, so I'm less than 10 minutes from Offenbach. And Offenbach was the really the depository of destroyed libraries, destroyed books, private collections. And you bring out so poignantly that, you know, millions and millions of books were destroyed, both in libraries and private collections and universities. I did graduate work in Leuven University up in uh, Flanders, Belgium, and they had their library destroyed twice. So libraries are destroyed. Your your book, Libraries of Fragile History, actually shows the destruction of libraries. But I thought what was most poignant was perhaps the Jewish book collector, the private family books that were treasures and were destroyed. There's been a lot of attention for artwork was looted. It's the destruction of books that's really been kind of left by the wayside in I, I guess because ultimately maybe we think of books as disposable. Yeah, that was, I must say, another motivation for writing this book because there's been so much more attention on the destruction, looting and recovery of art. And that's understandable because each artistic work is, is uh, unique and some are very, very valuable, whereas most of the books that were destroyed in the Second World War would have been a copy of a book which was also available in many thousands of other copies. And that actually is one of the things which has protected books from destruction, the fact that they are multiplied so many times over. Um, As far as the destruction of books in the war, this was uh, a feature in the occupied countries as well as the belligerent countries and was uh, part of the nature of the bombing war. There were good protocols for libraries dictating what they should send away to secure storage. But that, of course, doesn't really help if your whole country is conquered, as was the case in in France, the Netherlands, Poland, uh, Czechoslovakia and, and much of Eastern Europe. And here there is a sort of handbrake turn in German policy. It's, it's something characteristic of dictatorships that they can change in an instant. So they started the war trying to destroy the culture of Judaism and of Poland and of the Slavic peoples of the East just by destroying all their books and closing all their secondary schools. But then they said, hold on, if if this is going to be a thousand-year Reich, we have to preserve the records of these societies so that we know if they rise again, what we're fighting against. So Hitler dictated that there should be 10 bespoke institutions created, each with a library of half a million books, Um, for instance, on the Jewish question, so that they, they, they would know about this culture even in hundreds of years' time. Well, of course, that's not how it worked out, but for much of the war, huge consignments, whole libraries were being brought back to to Germany. But the problem with this plan is that it's easy to get trainloads of books sent to Frankfurt or to Munich or to Berlin. Uh, And this was not only institutional collections, I should say, but the private libraries confiscated from Jewish families, which uh, were sent uh, to the eastern were uh, murdered in the Holocaust, and their entire possessions were taken over, including their books. Some of those made their way into 
German public libraries and university libraries. But for the ones of these new special libraries, it was simply impossible to catalogue them in time for them to be usable, because by 1943, the tide had turned. By 1944, it was clear to everyone Germany was destined to lose. So trainloads of books crossed across, back and forth across Germany, looking for a safe place to be. Uh, unfortunately, many of the safe places chosen by the Germans were, were to the east, because the bombs were mostly coming from the west. And of course, after 1945, those books disappeared behind the Iron Curtain, either in East Germany or the Soviet satellites states, and were mercilessly plundered by the Russians. So that there are still millions of books unaccounted for, probably in libraries in St. Petersburg and, uh, and Moscow. Who knows? But whereas the ones that made their way to Offenbach, to this huge repository near Frankfurt, having been moved out of Frankfurt because of the bombing, they allowed the, the Allied troops who were uh, dispatched to uh, look after these resources, many of them trade librarians, um, this allowed large portions of libraries, which were still in packing cases, to be sent back to the Netherlands or sent back to France. Now, the Jewish collections, they pose a particular problem because there was often no surviving member of a family to whom these books had belonged, even if the family could identify them. So that led to uh, an enormous discussion, sometimes acrimonious, about what should happen with these books, because they couldn't be sent to Germany. That would have been bizarre, uh, even if they, they came from families living in Germany. So there were some choices. And in the end, about half the books went to Israel, the other half to the United States. It should be said that when these discussions were starting, there was yet, as yet no state of Israel. So it was extremely difficult to um, to fulfil the hopes of the uh, institutions that were collecting Judaic uh, books in uh, what became Israel um, right at the beginning of this. So a lot of these books ended up uh, back in New York and, and, and elsewhere in the United States. You know, it, it's interesting. And you brought out something very interesting about where books still are today. And you talk about the Arab Spring Revolution that kind of failed in 2011. And many people said that was a Facebook revolution. Well, actually, it really wasn't. It manifested itself on Facebook, but it was actually a highly literate revolution that had come from thoughtful reading uh, from, I believe, some Arab authors, some Algerian authors. And I think that perfectly shows the influence that books still have, despite all these other means of media and communications that we have. But books are still core to our understanding of our societies, our communities, and ultimately ourselves. Yes, I mean, that's a very, very important lesson. Uh, and it's a lesson for any student of the history of communication. We tend to think of new communication media as, as sequential, that one follows and takes over from another, whereas the real truth is that they're, they're cumulative. 
you adopt a new method of communication, a new media, radio, cinema, television, digital, but you don't necessarily give up your old familiar ones. You simply change the balance within your uh, leisure time or instructional time between these media. And we tend to assume that what's true of the United States and Britain is true of the world in general, but that's not really the case. There's been a, a, a tremendous uh, anxiety in Britain about public libraries closing and whether we can sustain a public library network. But in many parts of the world, this is still the springtime of uh, library creation. And there's every chance that libraries will continue to be a very important part of our uh, book culture. Uh, but then again, so are bookshops. In many respects, bookshops have taken over the many of the functions of libraries. If you think of you know, why you used to go into a library, it was to browse. That is to find a book uh, that you uh, didn't know existed until you went into to the library. I mean, that's an experience I tend now to have in bookshops um, because they offer such an enormous range. There's no real evidence that um, the book is on its way to, to the cemetery. Mm-hmm. Um, I, when I, I remember when I was uh, beginning my career, one of my former teachers said that, you know, technology was moving so fast, I would never write a book. Well, you know, that was over 50 years ago, and the book is, is going strong still. And um, I think to take the example of the library book, which you've mentioned a couple of times, something over 95% of all the copies that have sold were in the form of physical books, even though there is a e-reader version, but also a very nice audio book, which done very well. But with, particularly with nonfiction, people do still get more, it seems, out of a of physical book. And I think that's partly because it's much easier to read out of sequence. You can read it a chapter at a time. Uh, books don't, generally speaking, need to be read sequentially if, if, if they're not novels. And then you can use it as a reference tool as well. So there's a huge number of reasons why books will remain um, a part of their life. And you could say that one of the most interesting cultural phenomena of the 20th and 21st century is the non-death of the book, despite how many times it has been predicted that one or other of these new inventions would bring its age to an end. Absolutely. I haven't been in a library in the United States or a bookstore in Britain, Germany, pretty much throughout Europe or the US that wasn't packed. Uh, my husband works out of an army base in Wiesbaden. Right across the street is a small library. If you go there at lunchtime, it's packed full of soldiers looking at books. So books, I do not think, are going to go anywhere. The publishers I've talked to said they're printing more books than they've ever printed in different formats. But they're but the book industry is huge, and maybe that is. Maybe that is an enduring social phenomena. I uh, just recently read a comment by Elon Musk, who is the owner of Starlink Communications, right? And X or whatever they're calling it these days. And he said, 
you know what makes you smarter are reading books and talking to people. And maybe that is our humanity, really, about knowledge and our community. Andrew Pedigree, one last question I have to ask you. What are you reading right now? What am I reading right now? I've just finished uh, a wonderful book by Jonathan Rose on church as on the literary Churchill. And he makes a fascinating case that you can see all the threads of Churchill's career by the books he read and the plays he went to see. He was he was very much into Victorian melodrama. And so the slightly melodramatic uh, rhetorical style he, he introduced, uh, that lived with him throughout his life. It's a wonderful book, uh, Jonathan Rose, and uh, I recommend it to, to anyone. Andrew, I cannot thank you enough for your time uh, and for writing this beautiful book. Well, always a, a, always a pleasure. Okay. And you've been listening to Crossword, where cultural clues lead to the truth of the word. I have been interviewing Andrew Pedigree, the author of The Book at War, How Reading Shaped Conflict and Conflict Shaped Reading by Basic Books in the United States. Thank you. Thank you for listening. God bless.